Welcome back to Killer Fun. I'm Christy. I'm Jackie. We're so glad you're back with us. We explore the intersection of crime and entertainment every other week. Hey, Jackie. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. (laughs) We're just about there. And of course, we couldn't have our very first Christmas episode and not watch a movie that had to do with crime and Christmas. Yes. Well, and I have to say, this is actually my second favorite Christmas movie. Yes. Die Hard. Die Hard. Die Hard. Now, people, you know, fight me if you think it's not a Christmas movie. It's it's on Christmas Eve at a Christmas party. This is a Christmas movie. It's a Christmas movie. It is a Christmas movie that men and women can enjoy. And I have one thing to say for those who want to come at us with that. yippee ki <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, this movie is one of my favorites. I mean, A Christmas Story is my favorite Christmas movie. Me too. But Die Hard is right up there. Yes. Next to it. Yes. And I love it. But my husband, he doesn't... Really? He doesn't hate it. Yeah. But he doesn't love it like I he do. he doesn't, like, love it, love it. Right. But that's funny, because normally it's, like, dudes who like this movie just a skosh more. Well, he had a bit of a critique, and, and it made sense. And so okay. he doesn't like Bruce Willis as an action star as oh. much. He likes okay. quirky Bruce Willis. Uh, okay. And I kind of like came back. Like 12 Monkeys Bruce Willis. Yeah. Okay. And so I came back, and I was like, hello, he's super quirky in this movie, because he's a action star who didn't know he was about to become one and so all of his complete surprise that things work out the way he wanted it to and all of his fear I love that we see it you know and so he actually said yeah that's true okay so I do have to say I prefer the original Die Hard to like the later incarnations of Die Hard because he's a really superb like reluctant action hero yes where he he doesn't know he's gonna do it because he has to do it and there's no other choice but to do it and he's gonna be really really good at it but he's not superhuman right he's not completely confident like the later movies he kind of is a little it's a little it's like the end of friends when they all become caricatures of themselves yes which is totally endearing because you've been loving these characters for a decade. You go back and you watch after you've watched the end of the series and you go back and you watch the first ones again. You're like, oh, well, they were always kind of caricatures, but not like they were at the end. Right. They really started to... They amped everything up. Which is ironic you mentioned this because I literally just finished watching the series again Uh recently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. It'll be time to start over again. Yeah, yeah. Because this is what I do. Yeah. You and me both. Yep. yep. <laughs> you do it with Golden Girls oh, and yes. Friends. I do it with The Office. I do where, it with NCIS too. Yeah, yeah. I'll do it with uh, Gilmore Girls. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I like that one. And that you just like start it over and you're not ready to be done. Mm-hmm. I did this with Harry Potter. I read the Harry Potter books. Now, the, the movies, they're fine. But I love the books. Right. And there was probably a year, 15 months, where I didn't read anything except Harry Potter. And wow. I would finish the seventh book, and I wasn't ready to be done with it. So I'd pick the first book up and start reading, and I'd read clear to the end again. Okay, I, so I've never done that with a book. Oh, really? Mm-mm. Even ones I adore and mm-hmm. love. Once it's done, it's done. It's done. You're never... Yeah. Do you never go back and reread them at all? Or... There are certain types of books I might go back and reference or Mm. read a small portion if I remember, but I never go back and just read it again. Oh, really? I think 
The only one that I went back and read again as an adult, and so it was that much time, okay. was my one of my favorite books. Um, no, two of them. And that was 1984. I okay. reread as an adult after loving it for many years. Right. And then Counts of Monte Cristo. Oh, Those okay. two, I love them. And so I have read them twice, but many years apart. Okay. Like oh. when I forget things, I go, oh, I might want to read this. But I never have that like same drive to go read a book the same way I'm like, oh, really? First episode mm-hmm. of Friends. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I can't wait for Rachel to come in in her wedding dress. Yes. <laughs> yes. I can't wait for that first kiss. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's so nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So. That's fun. But yeah. movies. Yeah. Movies are different. They're different I don't you. watch them on repeat like I do no, TV shows. Me either. But I love them. Yeah. Like the ones I love. I love. Yeah. 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 Except for A Christmas Story on Christmas Eve. Oh, yeah. No, that's front that's, to back on yeah. repeat. That just, it, we pick it up somewhere in the middle and we don't go to bed until we've gotten to at least where we started. Yeah. That's just how it works. TBS goes on 30 minutes before it comes on and it goes off the second, the yeah. last one is done. Uh-huh. So that would be the exception right there. Yeah. 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 There we go. Well, it makes sense that it would be a Christmas movie that would be the one exception. True. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True. All right. So Die Hard starts off. John McClane is on an airplane, afraid to fly, flown from New York to L.A. It's a long flight if you're afraid to fly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that he'd ever get blood to his knuckles again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not afraid to fly, but I don't know that I want to do a transcontinental flight. It's not bad. Yeah. Once you're in the air and you're just going, and you yeah, just... it's not that big of a deal. You just hang for a while, yeah. you know? Going from Atlanta to Seoul, Korea, because we mm. live there, and it was a direct flight. From and Atlanta? So, mm-hmm. wow. And it was about 15 hours or so, depending on how bad the headwinds were. And mm-hmm. so it was... Once you get settled in, it just... You know, you settle yeah. in, and you do... You settle in, and it's fine. You walk around, and, you know, you hang out. It's a long time, but, yeah. you know, those... Some people are really afraid to fly, and I figure they're not so much afraid to fly as they are flying and then suddenly not flying. Yeah, yeah, they're afraid to crash. That's what they're afraid of. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not afraid of being high up. I'm afraid of falling from high up. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, um, but once you settle in and it feels comfortable, Uh it's it's good. But I haven't, I went through a stint where I was afraid to fly. Okay. Um, But most of my life I've been flying since I was an infant. So okay. Yeah, it's pretty easy. I met one of my best friends on an airplane. Really? Yeah. We she <laughs> she was terrified to fly and she had to fly for work. So it was we were flying for vacation and it was like seven fifteen in the morning and we were waiting to get on the airplane and she's like chatting with us. And we're chatting because we're friendly and she is very friendly. Very, very friendly. And we get on the plane and realize that She's sitting like across the aisle from us. And we talked the entire way from San Antonio to Atlanta. She was drunk, had been drinking screwdrivers since 5 a.m. <laughs> because she was terrified to fly. That is one way to handle it. Uh-huh. And it worked for her for many years. And now she has a Xanax prescription. So she does much better. But, it, you know, that was like 18 years ago, 19 years ago. <laughs> that is so <laughs> funny. Is, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it, that's why they do serve it. No, I don't think that's why they serve it, but it is a benefit of it serving is, alcohol on the plane. <laughs> it's why a lot of people drink it. It's it may not true. be why they serve it, because they serve it to make money, but 
a lot of people drink it because well, and you don't need to be drunk for it to help. No, it can just, just need relax. To, yeah, you just need to relax. Just relax, mm-hmm. and that's good. Yeah, yeah. I, I like flying a lot. Yeah. Oh. You know, and I flew a lot with the kids when they were little by myself, both of them. And uh, there's been some times where it's been stressful to fly, but yeah. overall, I kind of don't mind it. Really love airplanes. Oh. I kind of geek out over airplanes. Really? Actually. Oh, that's cool. Because there's another show I watch. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> She's looking at me like, I can't believe I'm going to confess this to yeah. you, let alone in front of a microphone. I watch Air Disasters. Air Disasters? I've never heard of Air it's Disasters. It's on Smithsonian. Okay. Um, air Disasters is about air crashes and the investigation of what causes them. So there's this whole investigation thing. Black boxes and all yeah. kinds of stuff. And yeah. how often they use the black box and how often they really don't. How often oh, they really? have to either, one time, one time they had to rebuild an aircraft <gasps> from all the pieces and parts wow. to figure out what happened. But a lot of times they have to be rebuild a section. It's just all this investigation that goes into putting all these pieces together from the data you know, because there's two black boxes. There's the voice recorder, right. and then there's the data recorder, right. um, which are not black, by the way. Like no, they're like bright, bright orange, orange, so that you can actually find them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, and by the way, let me answer the question. The reason why they don't build the whole airplane in black box material, <laughs> because everybody says if they would survive a crash, why not build the whole? Because it'd be too heavy, folks. Yeah, it wouldn't fly. It wouldn't fly. Said and done. It would be a train. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I, you know, all right. So, <laughs> obvious questions sometimes. Okay. Um, so, watching them put the data to the voice to um, air traffic control footage or just an understanding of what happened, it's just, I don't know, it's fascinating to me. And it's fascinating to learn what they learned and how it impacts all of air travel. That's so cool. But you do have to, they do show the crash. I mean, not video, but that they reconstruct yeah. it graphically and, right. you know, CGI. Yeah. Wow. I'm kind of obsessed. See, and that's that speaks to something. I'm not exactly sure what, but that you can watch that and still be cool with flying. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And so (laughs) my husband thinks that's crazy. Um, So what I do is I don't watch it when people are flying that I know. Okay. I don't know why. I'm not usually superstitious at all. But for some reason, like if I know that he's taking a flight, I'm like, well, I don't watch. Yeah, I can't can't watch the plane crash show. Yeah, because that makes him uncomfortable. So that makes me uncomfortable. So I'm going to watch the airplane crash show. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But but as soon as he's back, it's like. That's funny. So they didn't crash, though. They didn't crash, but his seatmate gives him advice about how to feel better after a flight and he says take your shoes off and your socks off and make fists with your toes on the carpet best advice ever so interesting (laughs) and so i was like does this work and why so i couldn't find any like obviously nobody studied this because who cares I mean, honestly, if it works for you, great. And that's all I was able to find was like anecdotal stuff that said, I've tried it. And what do you know? It works. And then people are like, I don't know what they're talking about. It's a dirty carpet in an airport. Doesn't make me feel any better. Well, wait, you get home, man. Like, (laughs) get on some nice carpet, you know? I think I think what it speaks to is placebo effect. Yes. <laughs> it's just, a, oh, what did I read? Somebody said they thought it was because it was a pleasurable feeling that's also kind of unusual. 
like you're used to feeling carpet under your toes, but you don't normally make fists with your toes in the carpet because we're not cats. (laughs) (laughs) You know, cats do that all the time. Yeah, yeah, they need things (laughs) and, you know. But we don't normally do that, and it's pleasurable and unusual, and that's what makes it... That makes sense. You know, calming. Of course, for McLean here, it didn't turn out to be um, that satisfying. Not He did enjoy it. Yes. And he said, fists with your toes. Mm, he had a <laughs> smile on his face right before all heck broke loose. Yes, exactly. The, the things went south. But before we got there... Um, Argyle, the first time limo driver, <laughs> picks him up, and it was John's first time in the limo and Argyle's first time driving a limo. And they, I just thought their play back and forth was really endearing. They were really sweet. Argyle played some music for John. John's like, Why don't you put on some Christmas music? And he's like, This is Christmas music, man. And it was Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC. Yes! <laughs> Which I was like, I don't really know this song. Well, there's a good reason why. It came out a year prior to Die Hard, which this is the 30th anniversary of Die Hard. It was featured in Die Hard and uh, another movie a year prior and a couple movies later. It wasn't until 13 years after it was released that it finally charted. Interesting. Which I thought was really funny. It got to 78, so not particularly high, on the Billboard charts in 2000. And I have no idea why. I couldn't find any information about what happened 13 years after it was released that would cause it to chart. But it was interesting and funny. And I was curious because there was a video that went along with it. And I watched (laughs) the video and there wasn't really anything crimey in it, but there was a sneaky crimey little elf that was right in the beginning santa's showing this elf how he's got this surveillance equipment to watch people and he's got computers to to put people on the naughty and nice list and the elf is acting kind of like uninterested and maybe a little dumb (laughs) and santa leaves and the elf sits down to look at the computer and he starts putting everybody on the naughty list and laughing. (laughs) It was really cute. And that's how he sees, that's how you get to run DMC is because he ends up looking in Hollis and seeing run DMC and transports himself there. It was very funny. It's the original elf on the shelf. (laughs) Yes, it was an elf on the shelf. So, but that was pretty funny and I'll post that video because it was enjoyable. That's so fun. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I just showed my son run DMC, walk this way with Aerosmith. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. He didn't like it. What? Broke my heart. That beat, he was like, "Mm -mm, no, no. The beat's the best part. Oh, he can't stand it. What are you talking about? I guess it sounds like an after school special now. Like, it just, it's so dated. The beat is so, I don't know. And so he just said... Uh, it sounds like something they would make out of a kid's video to teach you grammar. <laughs> well, uh, fair, but that, in its defense, that came before the video to teach grammar. Like, yeah. they made those grammar videos to sound that way because Be- of Run DMC. That's right, but he doesn't know that. He's only heard the other stuff. You know what I'm saying? And so it's pretty crazy. So basically they ruined it. 
Oh, those videos definitely ruined it. <laughs> they ruined it. They definitely That's, did. But he didn't like it, and I was like, I don't understand you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. Touchscreens. That was fun to see touchscreens in the lobby. Mm-hmm. He's checking in to go see his possibly estranged wife looking for her name, realizes she she's using her maiden name, then her married name, and he's so sad, but there's touchscreens. I, I love it because it's on the rounded monitor. Yeah, yes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you remember those TVs? I remember buying a tube television that my husband was like, look at how flat the screen is because you know they used to bubble out like a lot a lot and he's like look how flat the screen is and now we're obsessed with look at the curve going in you know we were we were obsessed with you know convex and now it's concave yeah it's popular i don't like those curves i don't i don't really either i I think i think they're hard to see i don't think they're gonna last i don't think they're gonna last either Mm -hmm. i well and they're I think they're not going to last because they've been out a while and they're still pretty expensive. Right. And they're, they're just, they're not everywhere. I think they would be everywhere if they had gotten really popular. They're going to be a flash in the pan. It's going to be the kind of thing that you see at a garage sale in five years. I think so. Because I think it's a one person TV. If you are sitting dead center, it looks really cool. But if you're sitting anywhere else, they're like weird glares on it and just, uh, no. Yeah. I'm too picky. Or not picky enough. Maybe maybe uh, that's it. Maybe, maybe I just I don't care that much. Does it look okay? It's fine. I just want it to work. Yeah, it's just work. Just work. <laughs> like if it were me touching that touch screen, it'd uh, crash for sure. <laughs> Blue screen of death. Uh, control out delete. Control out delete. Restart. Like that would have been me. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think you're a little gun shy because you had a computer die on you. Oh, I, but everything. I always have issues with tech. In fact, my computer, my new one, crashed recently. What? Right before I was trying to submit some homework. Hi. And I had a blue screen <gasps> on a Mac. Brand new Mac. And I snapped a picture of it. And so I showed it to my husband because, you know, he's Mac certified. And he goes, huh, I have never seen that before on a Mac. Congratulations. <laughs> it came back on. Okay. Well, good. It's just, you're special. I'm a walking EMP, I guess. I don't know. You're special. (laughs) So I appreciated the trickery. So John's walking after he checks in. He's walking to the elevators. And you see what looks kind of like a Middle Eastern man standing in the hallway. And... It had been a while since I'd seen this movie, and so I knew he wasn't one of the terrorists, mm-hmm. but it ma- I realized, oh, I'm supposed to think that guy's a terrorist. Mm. I'm supposed to, and I was like, ooh, that's a little bit of trickery. And then I, I didn't even think about that this yeah, time. No. Yeah. You're right, though. Yeah, like you're supposed to be suspicious suspicious of everyone. And then, of course, then they were super obvious with all the Pacific Courier stuff. When they walked in there, I I felt like a slow motion shot of them walking in all together. Uh Yeah. You know? I was like, oh, man. (laughs) So there's the Ellis, who's a co-worker of John's wife, Holly, who's obviously very interested in her. Very. He's a salesman. He's also sniffing cocaine. He is. And (laughs) it was the 80s. And I'm like, everybody did cocaine in the 80s. And then I was like, wait a minute. Why did everyone do cocaine in the 80s? That's a good question. Yeah. So I looked it up. Because this is what I do. Oh, 
Well, I'm so glad you did. Because now that you've asked that question, I need to know the answer. Yes. Okay, so there's a lot of theories, one of which is marketing. 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 That the cartel is basically a normal business, aside from being illegal. And, and violent. Know, uh, and violent and very dangerous. <laughs> but, that but they're basically sense. running a business. That's so, right. Breaking Brad taught us that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So they like gave celebrities cocaine so that cool people would be doing cocaine so that everybody would want to be buying and doing cocaine. <laughs> this was like a legit thing in the 80s that the cartel did. I'm, I'm, wait, I'm in shock my jaw. It's not surprising. No. And yet, kind of shocking. Yes, exactly. Like, I shouldn't be so surprised by this, but I am. Pablo Escobar made it widely available. So, you know, he was, had he not been, you know, a terrible criminal, he'd have been an excellent businessman. Makes you wonder. Yeah, if you, there's a parallel universe somewhere where Pablo Escobar is running the world. <laughs> and He's not, the Elon Musk of that yeah, Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that, um, well, people like it. Well, it's true. It makes people feel good. And so they do it, it. It's a drug that you can actually, dare I say, and don't ever, don't y'all get all mad at me on social media about this, but it is a drug that in small doses actually makes you more functional. Yeah, yeah. Which is why it was in headache medicines. Uh-huh. Which is why it was in um, Coca-Cola. Yeah. It was a very wide, because in a pinch. Yeah. It really did pep you up and you could function with it. Yeah. And so it was kind of natural yeah. in a way. Yeah. Well, I remember there was a meme that I read that uh, grandma said that when we were kids, she did way more stuff. And she goes, well, when grandma was my age, there was cocaine in soda. So that maybe that's why I don't get as much done. So, yeah. you know, you get, you feel good when you take it. You feel happy and confident. Ellis was happy and confident. I don't think he needed know. the cocaine to do that. Well, no, but it didn't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> There were, in the 80s, there were a lot of people with a, that were young and they had a lot of disposable income because... I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Because, see, cocaine is the uh, rich man's drug. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. The, it's the expensive part. Do you remember in Cruel Intentions, the movie Cruel Intentions? Love that movie. Yeah. I know. I'm kind of... It's such a vice. It's such a... Oh, it's such a guilty evil, pleasure. Evil guilty pleasure, yes. And so she has the little necklace. Yes. And it has the little cocaine in Gosh, it. Gosh, I love that movie. I know. I mean, really. I know. I was obsessed with it. Uh-huh. But now I think about it, well, I'm like, reason- I can't believe my parents let me watch this <laughs> over and over. Oh, I did put that one on repeat. Well, uh, you know, yeah. I was a teenager checking well, up. Yeah. And well, maybe young adult. <laughs> oh, and Reese Witherspoon was so cute. And Ryan Philippe was just gorgeous delicious dish yeah and i think i loved the fact that there was a real love story going on there yes yes i did too because he was like oh yeah then making this movie was fun because i got to make out with my wife it was it was like oh so sweet i love how love wins in the end over lust yeah which was a really interesting positive message but you had to kind of sit through some stuff to see it and yeah i don't know but maybe it was just because they they played bittersweet symphony and yes that just set it up and closed it so well Yep. Yep, exactly. Yep. Uh, people were familiar with 
cocaine. There were existing supply chains from the 70s because it was... It had it started in the seventies, and it's a lot of the supply chain started with uh, marijuana, and they used those same supply chains for cocaine. And See, then there business. was, and then there was the war on drugs, oh. which in many cases backfired pretty spectacularly. Right. The statistics actually show that the war on drugs increased drug use. Yes, because if this if they don't want me to have it because it's so awful, it must be fantastic. So you had millions of teenagers who were very interested in trying cocaine. Yeah, it was really amazing actually to go and look at the data from that. Um, and hopefully we've learned. We've learned what not to do, and so maybe we can affect a good change in other ways. Um, but it was, you know, well-intentioned. Right. Well-intentioned, but, you know. Yes. And I, I mean, I'm all for, like, talking to your kids about not using drugs and why it's bad. But I think there was maybe not a whole lot of the why it's bad, just it's really bad, don't do it. Right. It's really bad, it'll ruin your life. And... But no specifics about how it was going to ruin your life. Well, and the police got so obviously divided towards the war on drugs in such a way that it was just easy to get around. Yeah. They were because they were so focused on marijuana being a gateway drug that then police departments. Baloney. Yeah. Which is also disproven now. Right. Um, But that was what their thought was. And so they, uh, because like you said, the supply chain, they were thinking from a business point. If the supply chain started with this, then this is kind of a gateway drug to, I understand the logic they had. It just wasn't applicable to fighting it. Yeah. And so, um, but the police departments, they were so focused on it. And actually what they ended up doing was coming down hard on um, marijuana use and light usage of other things that they were so distracted. Yeah. That they were just porous. Well, and who was using cocaine? Successful white men. Yeah. They weren't getting arrested. No. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. So that was that was interesting. And, you know, then there's Hans. Or, you know, we love Hans Gruber. Oh, uh, may Our, he rest in peace. Aw, sweet Alan Rickman. He was so good. He was so good. And I forget how, like unconventionally attractive he was right like and in his youth he always kind of he played the bad guy so i never really thought of him as being attractive until you know you go back and watch his early work where he's playing a villain as an adult and you realize oh look like he was unattractive because he was unappealing because he was the bad guy but now i kind of am drawn to that a little bit not that i'm like you know, Ooh, want to, right. you know, want my husband to, you know, go be a villain or anything. Every time we watch Breaking Bad and when we watched Sons of Anarchy, we would, every time we'd watch it, which was like, you know, we'd watch it every night, we'd watch an episode every night. He'd say, hey, I think I should jo- go join a motorcycle game. <laughs> I'm like, I think that sounds like a great idea. I adore your husband. Yeah. <laughs> he is one of the funniest people. He's absolutely delightful. The way he looks at you is just so endearing, oh, and you oh, are so, so cute. Oh. But he absolutely should never join a motorcycle no. club, <laughs> and that's why it's so funny. And he should not join a motorcycle club. He should not cook meth. Definitely he not. <laughs> barely make spaghetti. <laughs> he should not cook meth. <laughs> 
bless him, he would agree. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. 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 But it is, it's interesting because he has such a command of the, of the scene. Uh, yeah. He has a very uh, charming face. And it's, he just takes command. He, well, and he's like the smallest person there, too. Mm-hmm. Like, he's a small but fairly petite man uh, surrounded by these very large German men mm-hmm. with Uzis. Yeah. They all listen to him. He mm-hmm. is the man in charge. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's just so confident and calm. But but just as an actor, I think there's something about him that just commands the yeah. the stage. Yes, you know. Yeah, he was he was really great. Yeah, I could in a never in another world, I could totally see him being more like Tim Curry had he uh-huh. been cast in other types of roles. Yeah, that's that's an interesting assessment. I hadn't thought of that because they both have that weird thing. Yeah, going on. <laughs> yeah, the weird thing. My favorite on. thing over Halloween was we watched it, the old one. You know, like oh. the one that's good. Uh huh. The one that was the new one not good. I've never seen either one of them. I have a thing about clowns. I don't really like. Them. I haven't seen the new one. Okay. Um, but I am a loyal Tim Curry fan. Okay. So the fact that they remade it and they made the clown much scarier, yeah. rather than Tim Curry's. Well, yeah, kind of funny. Yeah, he's a little funny, dark, very charming. He's uh-huh. just, I love the way he is. But the boy saw Tim Curry as the clown, and then I, I just showed him one still shot, just my oldest, one still shot of Rocky Horror Picture Show. <gasps> oh. And I was like, do you see it? And my oldest is like, what? What is he wearing? <laughs> and I said, that's Tim Curry. Uh-huh. And they were like, what? <laughs> oh, Rocky. Fabulous. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They used to have the midnight showings. I, the- oh, yeah. I mm. went to a few. I just can't, I could see Alan Rickman in that kind of. Yes, I could, too. Mm-hmm. Mm. It seems terroristic, but really right off the bat, we know that terrorism isn't Hans's ultimate motive. Right. It's theft. It's theft. He wants these bearer bonds. And, but everybody outside the building thinks it's a terrorist attack, basically. Right, which was his plan. Yes, which is fascinating. But I started there, I'm like, you're talking about bearer bonds. $640 million worth of bearer bonds. Yeah, what does that I mean, mean? Yeah, what what is a bearer bond? What does that mean? I mean, obviously, it's... You want to steal it because whoever has it, the bearer, is the one who can redeem Redeem it. it. So that makes sense. But that's about as far as I understand it. Well, and that, me too. So what did you find? Because I know you went and found more (laughs) information on this. I did. They're like other bonds where they earn like interest and stuff. Okay. Which I didn't realize. I just kind of thought they were like... Traveler's checks almost, which oh. I mean, do, do people even know what traveler's checks they are? They probably anymore? don't. <laughs> it's basically like you go in, it's like cash. And so you sign one part of it at the bank when you have your traveler's checks. And then when you go to turn it in, you use it like cash. And then you sign the other, the bottom part of it. And the signatures have to match in order to be able to use it. But once there's two signatures on it, it's just like cash. It's like, so I kind of thought they were like that, okay. but they're not. They have little coupons on them that you can turn in to get interest. Oh, oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. So it was, and it's really easy to transfer them because whoever is 
holding it, whoever takes the little coupon in is the one who gets the interest. Oh. Yeah. That makes the ease of ownership very reasonable to transfer, but it also makes it really good for criminals and people trying to avoid taxes. It's a very vulnerable. It's really vulnerable and really appealing to criminals. So how does this work in the digital world? Now, well, like how would this work now? Okay. Well, it, it doesn't in the United okay. States. In 1982, the United States discontinued issuances of new bearer bonds. Now, you can still issue them in other countries. Okay. So, we'll get to that in a minute. So, they they were used a lot. So, like, how did these come about? How did bearer bonds come about? It was a lot of it happened um, in the United States after the Civil War to fund construction. Okay. Of, or reconstruction of the South. You know, it was pretty devastated. They needed money to be able to do that. It was burned down. It, it basically, <laughs> yeah. I'm from Atlanta, and so, yeah. you know, we can just say that. Yeah. It was burned. It was, it was, it needed to be done. They could issue a lot of money, a lot of funds. Quickly. Through the bear bonds quickly. And with few notes, they were able to do it. So it wasn't like a loan exactly, but kind of like a loan. Well, yeah, bonds serve that way. More bonds and sort of stuff. Yeah. Right. And there's, you know, there's no ownership printed on the bearer bonds at all, which makes them very risky to the legitimate owners because there's no way to do it, uh, to track it. You have to be really careful with them because they're not all of them are rated. So if they're unrated or unlisted, then there's the possibility that whoever issued the bond wouldn't then renege on it. There was no okay. way to like force the people who issued it to pay it. Ooh. Yeah. So you had to be really careful. And a case of this happened in the 1920s in Germany that after World War I, they needed to rebuild. So... There were German banks that issued tens of millions of dollars in bearer bonds to help rejuvenate Germany's agricultural sector. And the bonds were set to mature in 1958, and they were payable by an institution in New York City. And neither the interest nor the principal has ever been repaid on them. (gasps) No. To this day? To this day. Because it was an unrated bond. So I'm like, hmm, I, I'm thinking this seems like a lot of trouble to go through for bonds that may or may not get honored. But, you know. I, how many of the buyers really understood that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Pro- probably not. Or they understood it knowing that they were going to get this money and they were never going to pay it back. I mean, they, they were swindling people basically right. in order to rebuild. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just I'm absolutely shocked by this. (laughs) Uh we saw it in entertainment. It was a big part of the plot of the Great Gatsby. Oh by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Okay, yeah. It was in Beverly Hills Cop, obviously (laughs) Die Hard Heat. And so they're trying to 
you know, steal these because they're easy to steal. I, I don't know that the, you're going to really get your money for them. It seems like a lot of work to go through for something. You would have to know that they're rated. Right. Exactly. You would have to know that. Right. So in 1982, The U.S. said this is too much of a risk, it's too unregulated, it's too crime-filled, criminals are using it too much. We're going to stop issuing these, but they can still be issued in Europe, but they have, now it's all digital. Now they're not really bearer bonds. They call them bearer bonds, but they've got names attached to them. Gotcha. They're easier to transfer, I guess, than regular bonds, but they're not paper like they were anymore. It's right. all digital. It's and all digital. So it's a little more protected, but it's not something that's issued in the United States. It's illegal to issue them. If you have a paper bearer bond, chances are you're going to have a really hard time redeeming it because there are very few brokerages that will work with you. And even if you are able to find a brokerage that will help you redeem it, there's a very good chance that whoever issued the bond called the bond a long time ago and when they don't have to notify you, which I'm like, that seems ridiculous. They don't have to notify you. Well, I guess because there's no name on the bond, how would they notify you? You can't, yeah. Yeah, they can't really notify you. They called the bonds early. So anybody who has this bond needs to bring it in, we'll give you the money, but we're not going to pay any more interest on it. So if you, there's like a time period after the bonds were, after they've been called and you can no longer redeem them. Not even the original value. No. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is crazy. I know. So I'm like... Interesting. $640 million is a lot of money. A lot of money. It was a lot in the 80s. It's still a lot of money now. But seems kind of risky to be putting this much effort into it. But yeah. this is what they did. So, well, more power to them. Yeah. There was a Golden Girls episode that dealt with war bonds. It was really funny. Oh, really? Rose has all her stuff on the front lawn. And so Blanche says, what are you doing with all that crap on the lawn? You're not having a tag sale, are you? Or a yard sale. Yeah. And so Rose says, yeah. And Blanche is is opposed to this idea. So she says, listen, I'll just give you $50 and I'll take it. Rose is saying, well, don't come to me if something smells funny or doesn't fit right. This is yours. (laughs) Sale is final. And so then Blanche finds war bonds to the tune of like $30,000. Oh, that's a good $50 investment. From St. Olaf. Oh. And so chaos ensues. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Why wouldn't it? (laughs) Well, this is very interesting. I never really paid attention to the the bearer bond thing. I I didn't realize how risky that was. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I just didn't know any really anything about them other than... Whoever's burying them is the one who can redeem them. And I'm like, I never hear anything about this anymore. I wonder if this is still a thing. Yeah. It's not really it's a thing. It's not That's really why. a thing. <laughs> it's not really a thing. Okay. Here was the part that you were talking about. John was in the, the air conditioning shaft. <laughs> so he does all this stuff. And hey, watch the movie. If you haven't watched the movie, it's 30 years old. Watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like... He's given he's given these terrorists a taste of their own medicine, yeah. terrorizing them a little bit, and in you know both violent and humorous ways. And he jumps down a AC shaft and jumps into an elevator shaft, and he says, "Now I know what a TV dinner feels like." 
<laughs> I'm going to have to find it. I've been meaning to make a Christmas ornament of this. Oh! It's so cute. I think I saw it on Pinterest, and it's just, you get a little box with the ends cut out uh-huh and you wrap it like in foil or silver paper and then you take a little picture <laughs> of john McLean and you kind of like bend it and stick it in there so it kind of is concave right. like you make it like and if the box is you know two inches wide the picture would be like four inches wide and then you cut him out and you stick him in there so he kind of is bubbling out and that is hysterical. so cute i'll put i'll put up a picture of it because it's really funny that's really it's funny really funny i'm like it's so easy and so clever it is it's, it's very a, clever yeah uh, that's one of my favorite lines the tv dinner it's so funny because it's such a small benign little line but the way he says it and it just gets me every time it's just it's funny. every time and he says a lot there's, that's what i like about this movie yeah there's so many clever funny things yes there's a lot of violence i love I the one-liners it. but there's there is so so much and I, I am always delighted by John's utter surprise at what he has to do and yeah. what he's going to do and then that it worked. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or that it didn't work. Like, he was, like, super excited to pull that fire alarm and see the police and fire coming and then they stop and turn around. And he's like... Wow! No, keep coming. It's so funny. It's, it's really so funny. And so when he drops all of the C four down the elevator shaft. Oh my gosh! Okay, really Love funny. And so it's one of my favorite little places because this you could tell he hasn't done this before because he stands and watches. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's looking <laughs> into the elevator shaft and then he's completely surprised. He needs uh, he needs the uh, diffusing bombs for dummies yes. book that we had for our last game. That Watch we played some last time. Mythbusters, man. <laughs> Go hide. But he's so surprised and it just uh-huh. cracks me up. Yeah. It's really funny. Like, just realize that he's kind of in over his head. He's got really good ideas, but he's not really sure how to implement them. Right. Very, very well. And I love how he talks to Al. Yes. Oh, Al. Al. Yeah. And so I love how he uses his his, uh, cop speak, you know, can't say right now. It's a party line. Uh-huh. Neighbor's got tricky trigger fingers. You know, like uh-huh. all these little things that you're like, <laughs> it's just delightful. Yeah, it's super fun. Super fun. I like that uh, John has an affinity for John Wayne. I was always partial to John Wayne. Roy Rogers. Do you think you have a chat? Oh, he's, it was Roy Rogers? He was always partial to Roy Rogers. Oh, I wrote That's down why down. Al called him Roy. Roy, Yes. That's right. Because he couldn't identify himself because of the, you know, party line and the neighbors with itchy trigger fingers. Mm -hmm. So he said, Roy. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, do you think you have a chance against the Calvary? Which is so funny. (laughs) To which he says his most famous line, which we can only say part of. yippee Kaye. That's right. That's right. Which is so fun. I love it. It's a fun movie. And you can't watch it and take it seriously. No, you really can't. That's kind of the key. mm -hmm. And it doesn't take itself too seriously. No. There's, you know, when he walks across the glass with his bare feet and, you know, all of these things. That was going to be what I came to next. Because they're fussing at, after he drops the C4 down the elevator shaft and it blows out all the glass. The police are fussing at him. They're like, we've got a hundred people covered in glass down here. 
He's like, glass? Who cares about glass? And then, oh, John cares an awful lot about glass because Hans and his henchmen shoot out the glass because Hans knows that John doesn't have any shoes on. Yep, because Hans came up and acted like he was one of the captives. Which was funny. You know, but John didn't believe it for a minute. No, he didn't give him a gun with no bullets in it, it, which was super fun. But he knew John didn't have any shoes on and shoots out the glass. Oh, well, John cares a lot about glass. Yes, he does. Which is really funny. And they do that several times in this movie where they kind of foreshadow things or... Who cares about this? Oh, you're going to care about this. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like it plays like a comedic callback. Yes. Is how it plays. Yes. You know, the comedian who sets it up and then at the end of the end of a set, he kind of calls back that first thing. And mm-hmm. it's always, that's, I mean, it's kind of a, a baseline. You got to yeah. know how to do the callbacks. And that's well, how the and, movie kind of plays. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like... Comedy, mm-hmm. you know, I love how it pulls from comedy. That's a sort of a serious. It's an action movie. It's not really serious. It's, a, it's it, parts of it are serious. It's an action movie, but it has a lot of these comedic elements that make it. That's what makes it such a great movie. Yep, that's why it's a great Christmas movie. So Hans is having the whole "I want my associates released from prison." ruse because he's still trying to convince the cops that this is a terrorist attack and of course they totally buy into it it made me think about like prisons and terrorists and so i read an interesting article i'll just touch on it that talks about how prison at least for a little while radicalizes just about every person who experiences it. Interesting. Yes, because a lot of what happens in prisons is kind of medieval. It's punishment. It's solitary confinement and shackles and degrading things that you have to do, you know, public showers and whatever every day. And that it tends to be a breeding ground for terrorists. So if you're not working towards rehabilitation in prisons you're contributing to the radicalization of them and there was an interesting quote from this gentleman peter newman who wrote a report called prisons and terrorism that was in the international center for the study of radicalization and political violence out of london it's a and long name. That it, well, yes. it's. I was like, wow, yeah, because that's a coffee table book right there, the International Center for the Study of Radicalization and Political Violence. I'm like, boy, yeah, that's just leisure reading, right? But he said, <laughs> he said it's often ignored by the public and policymakers that prisons are important vectors in the process of radicalization and they can be leveraged in the fight against it. And I was like, oh, that's good. That is interesting. That is good. So I just think that that's kind of interesting. Another gentleman, Mark Ham, who was a prison guard and warden in Arizona and is now a professor of criminology at Indiana State University, said he kind of studied this. And he said, you don't find radicalization in well-managed medium security prisons because inmates typically have rehabilitation, drug counseling, and work programs. 
that they're able to be involved in and that where you find radicalization is in overcrowded gang riddled gladiator schools mismanaged old time big houses so I thought that was just really interesting he didn't really care Hans didn't really care in the movie about these people being released it was all a ruse but I wanted to learn a little bit more about it and I thought that was really interesting and we've talked about this in the past that if you provide rehabilitation programs prisons are a much more effective solution to ills in society rather than asking people to stop and take a break from their life if you give them the tools to lead a better life when they leave you're gonna it's better for everybody right control yes it's about control because control can be very oppressive. Yeah. And and that can happen. So I have to brag because my yeah. oldest, um, he is the top writer, his new story, which is really an op-ed, okay. um, on his school online newspaper. Uh-huh. Um, and How cool. Yeah. And so the title is, Are Prison-Like Schools to Blame for School Shootings? Ooh. And so his entire premise is that he looks at how schools are so regimented uh-huh. and control is number one even though the entire idea is to empower and educate these kids actually because of the regulation it is so controlling down to the schematics because wow. when we had more violence what we did was we took a prison idea and we said limit the entrances and exits lock it down Lock it down. Now they have lockdown drills. There's nowhere to go. That, it causes a rat in a cage kind of situation, actually. Um, and so, in fact, in some areas of the country, you'll see new schools are built off prison plans. <gasps> what? They take prison plans and then they arrange it for a school. Wow. Yeah. And so it's very uh, interesting to uh, think about the more we see these kids start to act out so violently, we have to think about, are we doing this to them? Are we pushing in and controlling? It's kind of like we're holding the bird too tight. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we want to keep the bird safe from flying into the power lines, but we're holding it so tight we squeeze it to death. And that, oh, Yeah, or we squeeze it so hard it finally gets out and it and, goes... Yeah, and it goes straight for those power lines we were trying to save it Right, from. and so there's this idea starting to float among Ooh. even some educators that uh-huh. I won't name, but I've had some discussions with that they are trying to lobby for new schools to be built with more exits where every classroom has a door to the outside. Yeah. Sunlight. My kids have been in classrooms that have no sunlight, you know, and starting to open it up a bit. Also loosening the schedule a little bit. Do you know that my kids in elementary school and even intermediate walked heel to toe from their classroom to specials to cafeteria and back heel to toe? Yeah. This is not basic training. Now, I agree. They should be quiet. They should stand in line. They should be appropriate and orderly. But heel to toe, like your nose in somebody else's body. No. No. And having to deal with somebody on your back? Uh, You Mm. know, and I can really empathize why they feel like they need that. Me too. You know, because they have, they're increasingly asked to handle more and more children on smaller and smaller budgets. I, you know, I get it. It I get it. It makes their lives a little easier, a little more controllable, a little, this is one less thing we have to worry about if we can train these kids to do this. But at the same time... What are we doing to them? We're squashing them. We're 
squashing their creativity, their individuality. We're pushing them into a box, and if they don't fit in that box... That's where you get a squeezed bird. Then you get the squeezed bird. You do. And yeah. and this is where we're seeing a lot of people start to act out. Now, to be fair, school shootings are still extremely, extremely rare. I know we feel like they're everywhere right now, but right. they are less than 1%, like by a lot, right. of what happens in this country. Right. However, we have seen a dramatic increase. Yes. So this is the idea. Um, and to also, I should note and point out that most school shootings are actually gang related. If you look at the stats, right. So they're not related to, to school shooter mentality well, the way we think. Yes. But they are related. They, they are related. And would you perhaps have less gang activity if you had more supportive communities that gave children in high gang activity areas, another option. Right. If they had another safe option, would they take that rather than, because most kids join gangs because they need the safety in the community. That's right. That's right. This is why they join. They join because they need the protection. If they're not in it, they're a target. So they join it to not be a target. If we can... If we can give more support to communities that need that kind of support, we'll have less gang activity, we'll have less shooting. And I think it's important to realize that all kids, all kids, those who grow up in areas with gang activity, those who grow up in suburbs, those who grow up in cities, all of them have a major need, and that's to have an ally. Yes. And when people are being controlled, whether it's good intentions that has caused the control or else, people who are controlled do not feel like they have an ally. And I'll tell you, even my child would say, as great as some of his teachers are, as wonderful as his principal has been, there are some wonderful things, but I I can tell you he wouldn't go as far to say, yeah, they're my ally. To feel like you are alone, that's where we get the lonely, alone, loner. Uh-huh. That's where it goes. Yep. And it's not causal. We're all kind of just, well, brainstorming right. here. But it's an interesting thing. Well, and we thing. certainly don't have all the, all the information. We don't have all the answers. But it's worth looking into and kind of keeping it in mind that, here are some things that maybe we can do. We can mm-hmm. encourage our school districts to build a different kind of campus. We can, you we know, can do we, that. Can, we can try and help support programs that help all kids after school, particularly those who are in at risk environments mm-hmm. to help them not feel like they're pressured into that. And we need to support our teachers Mm -hmm. because they're under the gun. They're being controlled a lot too. And so we see that pressure coming on them. But I feel like uh, just like in in ants, when the ants realize how many there are, you know, and, and they're in a bug's life too, where they realize how many there are, they are versus the, the crickets, you know, Um, I think I want to empower the teachers to realize that, that we're their ally. Right. And that there's more of them than any of the policymakers. We can stand up and make a difference. Yeah. We can. Yeah. That's a heavy topic. It is. A but heavy I also topic. had to brag on my kid because yeah. he's got the top op ed on the front page. Front page, top of the fold. That's guys. nice. Very nice. Cool. I love it. I love it. Our world definitely needs reporters and journalists more than ever. Yes. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Officer Al shares his story 
about why he was kind of on the beat that he was on, that he had shot somebody who didn't deserve to be shot and that had a he had a really hard time dealing with that so I kind of was curious as to how much of that happens yeah so I did a little research the National Institute of Justice which is a a part of the U.S. Department of Justice has some um, information about this and that most officers actually don't feel like Al does after he shot the person that the long lasting negative effects don't usually happen. They're very, actually very rare that three months after a shooting, whether it's justified or not, most officers are feeling okay about the situation. They did what they felt like they needed to do in that situation and they're, they've made peace with that. Interesting. So I thought that was kind of interesting that, you know, I, of course, in the 80s when this came out, the research said something different. This is the more recent research. and It is surprising, mm-hmm. I think. Only occasional recurrent thoughts persisted after the three-month mark and only for about a third of police officers. And only uh, about 10% have trouble sleeping after three months. The other fear that they have is primarily legal. Well, I can There's understand. There's not a lot of guilt, but they they have a lot of uh, legal fears, which I totally get. I totally get, which is very interesting because we kind of see it in the news. Um, you know, these, well, I mean, recently we've heard of officers shooting a kid when they had something that looked like a gun. Right. And it's hard. And I felt when he told that story, you're just like, your heart just breaks. Yes. You know, but, but that's what makes him such a lovable character is that he's got this good heart and that he really wants to do the right thing. And that when he made a mistake, he really kind of beat himself up for it. But then he kind of gets redemption at the end. He does. And I love how he's sitting there knowing what he knows and all of the buffoons around him. (laughs) And so they are shooting out of the top of the building and they're all trying to protect themselves. And he's just sitting there. They're going for the lights. Uh huh. <laughs> there goes the lights. Uh huh. Yep. It's not. They're not trying to shoot at us. They just want the lights to be out. Again, there's another uh, universe where Hans Gruber is using his powers of deception for good, <laughs> because man, he had the local police, everybody except for Al, because Al was talking to John, and. The FBI, they all thought this was a terrorist thing. They yeah. all did exactly what Hans wanted them to do and planned for them to do. He knew what their playbooks were and he knew how to get them to enact every scenario, yep. which I thought was great and super interesting. And of course, you know, he's trying to fake his own death so that he can get away with these bear bonds, which <laughs> made me wonder. I'm like, did he ever expect to get out with all of his men? I don't think he did. Oh. I think he knew that almost every one of the henchmen he hired were going to die. I think so, too. And he was planning on their deaths, and he just didn't share that part of his plan with them. Well, I don't think that he shared much of the plan, because even when they came in, the cops are coming. Yeah. But they'll call the FBI. And so he was it's like early, yeah. but he was like, ah, uh, well, yeah, we just, need a, just as I 
planned for them to do or something yeah. to that effect. And, yeah. But it was early. He uh-huh. said, well, we need them anyway is uh-huh. kind of the mentality. Yeah, and so, we need them to come and do this. Yeah. This is part of the plan. Yeah. And they're all like, what? You know. So one of my, right near the end, probably my favorite Hans line is Holly tells him, John's wife Holly tells him, you're nothing but a common thief. And Hans says, I'm an exceptional thief. (laughs) And I was like, ooh, that's good. He is an exceptional thief. He's ruthless. I wonder what other exceptional thieves there are. Ooh, I like exceptional thief movies. Yeah, this was, this is kind of interesting. There were a lot of exceptional thieves that I kind of looked at to try and decide, okay, am I going to talk about one of these? Am I not? Okay, so it's not so much that the thief is exceptional, but what he did caused something exceptional to happen. Oh, I'm so intrigued. Okay, so there was a man named Vincenzo Perugia. Perugia, thank you. I can see it and I can't quite get it on my Perugia. It's All my right. Romandi name. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> it helps. Yeah. Yeah. So Vincenzo was a gentleman who worked for the Louvre. Ooh. Occasionally. He was like a handyman and he would help uh, restore the glass and make repairs to glass enclosures in the Louvre in 1911. Okay. Okay. He, the Louvre is in France. He was an Italian. Mm-hmm. Hence his name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he felt that the Mona Lisa belonged in Italy because... Da Vinci was Italian. Okay. And he thought that the Italian painter's work should reside in Italy. Okay. Okay. So at this time, the Mona Lisa was on a wall with a bunch of other art. It wasn't the only thing on the wall. Really? Yes. Oh, interesting. It was not a particularly renowned painting in the early 1900s. But Vincenzo really thought it should, it belonged in Italy. So on Monday morning, a day the Louvre was closed, he put on the outfit that he would wear if he was going to go in and do handyman work in the Louvre. And he had a smock and he walked in and he took the Mona Lisa off the wall and he put her under his smock. The Mona Lisa is, uh, I believe, 30 inches by 21. So it's not... Oh, it's not big. It's not, yeah, no. it's not big. It's not tiny. But it's not big. Right. Yeah. I mean, people think of it and they think of like Gunierka, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a giant wall sized thing. Right. You know, but it's not. It's pretty small. It's like a poster. So he walked right in, put it under his smock, went to a door, found it locked, and a plumber who was also working there that day helped him get the door open. <laughs> and he walked right out wow. of the Louvre. With the Mona Lisa. Wow. So his idea was that he was going to basically kind of ransom the Mona Lisa to somebody in Italy to that wanted it returned because it's returned to its homeland where Da Vinci was from. It was just starting in the early 1900s where we had worldwide news. Okay. We hadn't really had a lot of worldwide news or the ability to transfer the news quickly. 
right, right. worldwide prior to this. This was starting to just become a thing. It became an international story. People in California had seen pictures of the Mona Lisa and known it had been stolen and within like a week or two of it being stolen. Now, the Louvre didn't even realize it was gone right away <laughs> because it was normal for paintings to be taken out of their frames and taken to photographers within the Louvre to be photographed for posterity in case they were damaged and needed to be reconstructed or if they, you know, became damaged beyond repair, they would have a record of it. Mm -hmm. So they realized it was gone. They went down and checked with the photographers. Photographers said, no, we don't have it. (laughs) And that's when they realized that it was stolen. And it wasn't until the day after he stole it that they realized that, well, by this time he's in Italy. Yeah. So he's not ready to make his move right away. He doesn't want to give it up immediately. No, you got to sit on that for a while. Yeah. He puts it in like in a footlocker <laughs> and the story blows up. People are flocking to the Louvre to see the spot where the Mona Lisa had been oh. because <laughs> they'd seen her. Uh, she had been photographed so they could so circulate they the picture. circulated the photo around the globe. So everybody knew what she looked like. It was two years that the Mona Lisa sat in his footlocker. Vincento got tired of waiting. So in 1913, he contacted uh, Alfredo Gary, an art dealer in Florence, and said, I want to return the Mona Lisa to her homeland, but I'd like a reward for it. Of course. So Gary said uh, that he would like to authenticate the painting. Mm -hmm. Seems reasonable. So Vincento takes it down to Alfredo's gallery, says, here you go. (laughs) He goes, okay, let me authenticate it and I'll get back to you. What does he do? Immediately calls Calls the the police. police. (laughs) So they arrest Vincento. Alfredo gets to put the painting, this now famous once stolen painting, up in his gallery for a couple weeks before it's returned to the Louvre. And that they believe that Mona Lisa might not have really been very famous had she not been stolen and had it become an international story. Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? That's why we love it all. And that's why we love her her smile because lots of people saw it and she has a fascinating story. Now, interestingly, Vincenzo only served six months in prison and Italy praised him for patriotism. (laughs) Yeah. So, I bet they did. Yep. That's funny. He served in World War One and um but then moved back to France after World War One. Oh. Which I was like, okay, that's interesting. So that's the story of how the Mona Lisa became famous. It was only because she was stolen. So while I wouldn't say that Vincenzo Perugia is an exceptional mm, thief, yeah. what happened because of his thievery wasn't exceptional. That's so So true. I thought that was kind of interesting. That is so, so interesting because now it's on a wall by itself. Yes. <laughs> behind bulletproof glass. Right. Yeah. There's yeah. all, yeah. Which is more secure, the Mona Lisa or the Declaration of Independence? I guess probably the Mona Lisa. I wonder. I don't know. Sorry, I just watched National Treasure. Oh. 
Well, they're both under bulletproof glass, I think, but I think you can probably get closer to the Declaration of Independence. Well, there's more than one copy of it, too, though. Yeah, but they, and like, I don't know how much of it is true, but I definitely think they have the heat sensors because they definitely oh, yeah. keep. But I wonder if, if the Mona Lisa and paintings do. I don't know. Because, like, when I went to um, MoMA, um, uh-huh. you know, at in New York City, and yeah. you can go see Oh, Starry Night, you yeah. know, and um, you're looking at it, you get so close. Yeah. You could, like, if you really, if nobody was looking, yeah. you could touch it. Yeah. My, I have a picture, uh-huh. and I'm, like, right up on it, right? Yeah. And um, you can get so, so close. But yeah. But not at the Mona Lisa. Well, now I understand why. Uh-huh. Now, now you understand why. Although, there was... Very serious looking guards. At yes, Mama. you had to be very, very careful. Yeah. I actually accidentally touched a piece of artwork in an art museum. Once. Yeah, there's an art museum in uh, San Antonio called the McNay. Oh, and yes. it used to be a home. And we were there on a school trip, and there was this. I don't even remember who the artist was. Somebody relatively famous, and it had uh, it was all like blocks of different shapes of wood, but it was in this very large like frame, and there were lots of them, and it's all painted black. But it was really interesting, and I reached out and touched it because I just couldn't because I was like <laughs> ten, it was like nine or ten, and I just I didn't have the impulse control to not touch it. Mm-hmm. And they were like, "Don't touch it! Don't touch it!" There and. I, I heard one of them say, that's a lot of paperwork I don't want to do. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It all turned out fine. I have to say, it took an immense amount of control to not touch it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always amazed. They have Monet's in the same museum and oh, yeah. you can get right up on them oh yeah you, and i'm always shocked well, you have you have to like you can't right. go and not get inches you have to because yeah you've got to see how it's done well and yeah. then walk backwards from it and it's just phenomenal yeah but i i, I may have i may have touched the frame oh <laughs> I touched Prince's guitar once. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, went to, we went to a concert and we were there early for a sound check as part of a club. And we had been there and it was between the sound check and when the concert actually started. And I went to go to the bathroom. And when I walked by the front of the stage, the guitars were just there. <gasps> yeah. So I just reached out and touched one. And so, all right. So the only thing that really bothered me about this movie, I was able to forgive like, when Hans falls off the <laughs> off the building and the graphics aren't fantastic because oh. it was 1988. So, you know, you know, you just kind of go with it. The thing that bothered me was John's shirt. He's wearing like the wife beater undershirt. Right. Because he that's why he's barefoot. He was kind of in the middle of changing, changing. for the party after just coming off the airplane. And the shirt's white when he starts, and then he goes and crawls through the the AC shaft, and his shirt is like it's like brown, mm-hmm. like all solidly brown. Yeah. And then closer to the end, it's like white but stained with dirt and blood. I'm like, <laughs> he didn't change his shirt. He was he was way dirtier, and it was way too even of a dirtiness. Uh huh. So that was the only bone to pick that I had with this entire because movie. that's not that's not related to age. That's just a continuity issue. That, well, and that's yeah. like a. You know, costume designer, prop master, somebody somebody should have had a better handle on this. It was a fairly big budget movie for the time. And somebody should have been 
taking a picture of him every day and saying, this is the order that we're going in. What level of dirt does should he, he have? Should he yeah. have on his shirt? And maybe that's just something that they didn't pay as much attention to, but it bothered me a lot. Well, I think, I mean, not to knock the director, but good directors yeah. have people who are continuity people on their team. Yeah. I think probably they should have just caught it. Yeah. They should. Is it, you know, it bothered me a little bit. Yeah. 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 Cause you don't, <laughs> they just missed it. They just missed it. Yep. But it's true. Yeah. Makes me wonder about AC ducts. Are they really that dirty? I don't Ooh. think I want to know. Well, I mean, my filter's pretty dirty sometimes when I take it out, you know? It's all yeah. blowing through there. Ooh. Well, I always imagine that it's dirty because it's keeping that stuff out of there. Well, that's, the, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's circulating it. And yeah. Then you have your filters. Yeah. And... My, my filter's dirty so that it's not in my ducts. That's... I just don't need to know. <laughs> it's I don't need to have, see how the sausage is made. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the proverbial dirt sausage in the... Air ducts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's gross, right? It's pretty, it's pretty nasty. Yeah. Yeah, pretty nasty. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, I'm totally cool with that. You know, um, it didn't bother me so much about mm-hmm. it. Usually, okay. what's funny, though, is usually continuity issues really bother me. Really? Oh, I, my husband will tell you that I will sit in front of a movie and I just can't even. I just... <laughs> I can't even. And so last last night, actually, we were watching Arrival. Okay. Actually, just the last half of it because he had started on his airplane ride. And so we were watching it. We get to the end. And if you haven't seen Arrival, spoiler alert. There's a little girl and her name is Hannah. And so at the end of the movie, kind of the whole idea is we realize that there's a new way to look at time and it's circular and, you know, and so time is a flat circle. Yeah. And so now we have this like new language that's written in circles and uh, whatever. So this language <laughs> is written in circles. And so the mom who's, uh, you know, Amy Adams plays the main okay. character and she's speaking to her child and says, well, you know why your name is Hannah? Because it's the same backwards and forwards. <gasps> Isn't that sweet? And the movie ends, and I go, she should have spelled it H-A-N-N-A. And my husband looks at me and goes, why? I was like, because if she put it in a circle, then it would be Hannah no matter which way she read it <gasps> on the oh. circle. Because if you put Hannah with an H in the end in a circle. Yeah, then you have two H's mm-hmm. in a row. So it should have not had an H. That way it was a circle, like the rest of the language that they were pointing out. And he says, oh, that's interesting. Then he goes, this is why you don't enjoy movies. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy movies that pay attention to the details. Yes, yes. So I'm surprised I didn't catch the continuity issue and that I'm like totally okay with it. Yeah. Well, it's fine. You can be okay with it. You can you can be okay with the shirt in Die Hard and not okay with the way yeah. she spells her daughter's name. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. fine. That's okay, right? Yeah, okay. it is okay. All it right. It is okay. Well, I don't have anything else to say about this movie, except if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. If you haven't seen it in a while, you should watch it again. It's totally worth watching again. it's totally fun. It's the 30th anniversary, so if you need an excuse. And while you're at it, if you're interested, because we were talking about Friends earlier, definitely go watch the episode with Bruce Willis. Yes. What's the name of the one that he's in? It's the one with... Okay. There's a few where... Where he is in, because he plays the dad of Ross's very, very young girlfriend. Uh But there's one in particular that's really hysterical. (laughs) The one where Paul's the man. The one where Paul's the man. Yes. Okay. Yes, it's the one. So, okay, 
You have to go watch Bruce Willis in Friends. Yeah. Because we were talking about Friends earlier, and so you've got to go see this. There's quite a few episodes that he's in because he plays the dad of Ross's very young girlfriend, uh-huh. which is hysterical. But the most hysterical one is the one where Paul is the man. Okay. It's totally worth watching. Okay. You have to go see it. It's Bruce Willis at his finest. That's so awesome. I love it when he does comedic things. So funny. Yeah. You know why he was on Friends, right? He lost a bet. No. Yeah. What is this? I, I don't remember all of it. I'll fi- I'll find an article and post it. Um, but post I remember he hysterical. lost a bet, and that's how he ended up being on Friends, and then enjoyed it enough to do several episodes. Well, because so. he was good. Yeah, he was well, really good a, on he's it. He's a really so good stellar. Actor. Yeah, yeah. He's a really good actor. So yeah, totally fun. All right. Well, Merry Christmas, everybody. We hope that you have a. Uh, safe and wonderful holiday season and we'll see you soon yep see you soon